That was the next horror. I was to be subjected to the unremitting company of boys. There'd be sport. How loathsome. My father told me about sport. You should be really pleased. I told him that I was really pleased, but I don't think he believed me. The picture became worse with everything he said. He may as well have said they'd strap a brace of rabid monitor lizards to my head and dunk me in liquefied dog dung every day. Chapter 4 Frigg and White Tara 1960-1963 Having been condemned to the purgatorial penitentiary of West Street Boys Junior School, I found myself standing in the playground watching them. Boys. A repulsive spectacle. Alien beings whose enjoyments ranged from anomalous to abhorrent. They kicked and pursued perfectly innocent balls. They chased each other, yelling captions from boys' adventure comics for purposes I could not comprehend. Then there was their nauseating primitivism. The urinal to the west of the playground was an open air situation. A freestanding wall facing a five-fold defecatorium. On the playground side of the urinal wall was a water fountain at which one could drink. But there was always a risk involved in drinking from that water fountain. If one didn't first check who was on the other side of the wall and purportedly micturating, one could be subject to a malodorous drenching. One of the favourite tricks of the fine young lower primates was to stand in line at the urinal, applying pressure in order to prevent the discharge of urine. They'd wait till someone was taking a drink and then let fly over the wall to drench whichever unfortunate was taking a drink on the other side. Their degree of control and tolerance for pain had to be admired, but their wit and maturity placed them somewhat below the average invertebrate. I told my father about it, and for once he agreed with my dislike of immature male barbarism. There were, of course, other aspects to the barbarism. During my first days at junior school, Adrian Parrott started picking on me. It went on all week until I finally hit him square on the nose. I'd been amazed at how the boy simply fell to the ground with blood gushing from his nose. At first, I thought I had killed him and was horrified. I was still horrified when I realised he wasn't dead. I'd not intended to hurt him that much and couldn't understand quite how I'd accomplished such a blow. I got into serious trouble over that at school even though a few other boys came to my defence. They all confirmed that Adrian Parrott had been bullying me and that he had started the fight. 
but the teachers deemed me to have hit back far too hard. How was I to know how hard to hit? I'd never hit anyone before. The teachers concluded that I was a thug. I told them it was the first time I'd fought, but they didn't believe me. My parents received a severely worded letter and I sat in a state of anxiety as my father read the letter aloud to me. By the time my father had read the letter and briefly questioned me, he seemed perplexingly pleased with me. He contacted the school to the effect that I was not and had never been the type of boy to fight. He told them I was not to be punished for defending myself against a bully when there were reliable witnesses who had observed the bullying. It was their responsibility to police the playground and if they were incapable of maintaining discipline, they had no business running a school. He read his letter to me, beaming. I was stunned by his approbation as I'd expected him to punish me. He must have concluded that I was a real boy after all. I was never bullied again and it wasn't long before I was talking to Adrian in a friendly way. The teachers observed this and I was taken aside to be informed that the school was now content with my playground behaviour. From that experience, however, I knew I could hit someone hard enough to floor them, but it never enamoured me of pugilism. One of the few things I liked about West Street School was the setting of the playground. The Victorian railings were magnificent, as was the rather splendid iron representation of cardinal directions inset into the stone flagging near the entrance. Trees lined the playground on the sides which faced the two small streets on the north and east sides of the playground. I thought it was a wonderful idea to have planted them there. At the northern end of the playground there was a smallish wilderness area, about three yards wide, which was full of all kinds of trees, a laburnum, silver birch, several willows and horse chestnuts and sweet chestnuts, an oak, elder, hawthorn, crabapple and various beeches. They were identified for us in a nature lesson and I suddenly felt as if the school wasn't so bad after all. Then there was the music teacher, Mr Sharp, who actually knew something about music. He commenced to unravel the mysteries of notation and I was fascinated. I sat next to a boy in the music class who seemed friendly. His name was Steve Bruce. He was a great help to me because he seemed to know a great deal about musical notation. There was nothing Mr Sharp taught that Steve didn't already know. So Steve had plenty of time to provide me with extra tuition. I was always slow to learn anything, but once I'd learnt it, it was there for good. 
Steve's parents were atheists. That was a pleasing piece of information. It gave me some degree of confidence in my association with him, as Alice Trevelyan's parents had been atheists. With any luck, they'd be as open-minded and friendly as the Trevelyans had been. I talked with Steve about my fascination with the religion of the Vikings and how I regretted that it was no longer available in the world. Of course, I knew almost nothing of ancient Norse mythology, apart from what I gleaned from the television. I'd seen a few films and read books by Henry Treese, but the rest was my fertile imagination. What do you like about it? asked Steve. I like it that there isn't a god who was supposed to have made it all. The Norse gods didn't make the world. They're just another part of it, a part that's mysterious. That's interesting, Steve replied. I suppose, although it's a primitive religion, it's not as primitive as believing in an uncreated creator. Steve noticed he'd lost me with the words uncreated creator and explained in less arcane language. That's a god who made it all, but with no one who made him. Ah, I replied, that is obviously ridiculous. What I like is that there are things that happen that don't make sense in the ordinary world. What do you mean? Well, it seems that teachers and all those kind of people think that everything works by rules and laws, but Thor and Odin don't obey those laws. That's what makes it impossible to have rules that work all the time. I think part of things in the world make sense and another part doesn't. Then the way the two are sort of knitted together is what we see, you know, the universe. I see, said Steve pensively, like how things are a mixture of patterns and accidents. Something like that, yes. My parents told me about how people try to make proofs of God through examples of pattern and design. But there are equally examples where there's no pattern or where the pattern is just something that's appeared for obvious reasons that have to do with things like climate changes. You know, like the things we've been learning about the Ice Age from that radio series, How Things Began. I really like that series, I grinned. Apart from music and art, it's the only thing that makes school interesting. Yes, but did you know that there are some people who believe in God who don't like what Darwin said about evolution and say it's not true? Yes, my grandmother told me about that. They must be like Nazis, I added. She said that the Nazis in the war told my grandfather he wasn't allowed to teach evolution in his school. Just think of that. My mother was amazed when she saw her first dinosaur skeletons at the British Museum because my grandparents didn't dare tell her about them. 
They'd have been locked up if anyone found out. And my grandfather lost his job as headmaster anyway, because he wouldn't teach what the Nazis were saying about that or about Jews. Exactly, said Steve. So if it's all God's plan, then Hitler must have been God's plan too. And I'd like to know what wonderful kind of plan that was supposed to be. Yes, I almost shouted with the exhilaration of having something make sense. And even if Hitler was the devil's idea, you'd have thought that God would have been able to do something about him. After all, God made the devil in the first place. Yes, the whole thing makes no sense, Steve responded emphatically. So if you're going to have a mythology, it might as well be fun, like Valhalla. I could enjoy feasting in Valhalla. Yes, and with beautiful Valkyries and all that, I concluded. Steve grinned at that. The idea that girlfriends existed somewhere in the future was a subject which was on our minds. You know, talking about Valhalla makes me think of Freya and Frigg, the Norse goddesses. What are they like? Freya wears the necklace Brisingarmen and a cloak of falcon feathers. She rides a chariot pulled by two cats and a wild boar called Hildisvini runs along at her side. Frigg is white and shining and I think I've seen her in my dreams since I was very young. As soon as the words were out of my mouth, I realised I'd said far more than I'd wanted to say and said, I hope you don't think I'm an idiot for seeing Frigg in my dreams. No, Vic, it sounds fantastic. I wish I had dreams like that. We were good friends from that day on. My father was pleased that I had made a male friend and one whose father was a police superintendent. He was surprisingly impressed. He seemed to get the idea that I had taken a better direction in life. I was glad that I had been able to tell Steve about the White Lady and that there was a way in which I could understand her through the Norse goddesses. They were obviously real. They clearly still existed. How else was I dreaming about one of them? How else had Frigg appeared in my bedroom? Of course, Frigg's actual appearance in my bedroom had not recurred for a few years. I did wonder whether Frigg had actually appeared in my bedroom or whether it was just a vivid dream as my mother had suggested. There was no way of knowing, but the feeling remained that her appearance had been real even though she had been made of light. I still missed Alice. I didn't mention Alice to Steve straight away because I didn't know what to say. He wasn't a non-sapient sport ape, as most of the boys were, but I didn't know how he'd react to my mentioning Alice. Steve was a prolific reader and encouraged me to read. He said that people who didn't read were morons and I was determined that Steve should not think me a moron. 
I'd enjoyed reading Henry Treese's Viking trilogy, but had found it hard to find anything else that was as interesting. Steve pointed out that the lack of good novels in the school library was little short of criminal. He was reading Guy de Maupassant and thought that The Famous Five and The Secret Seven were for infant school children. He told me about things which were much more interesting. They were harder to read, but they were much better, even if you had to use a dictionary a lot of the time. Steve had suffered a long childhood illness, which had adventitiously galvanised his enjoyment of literature. He'd had little to do but lie in bed reading, whatever his parents thought he could manage and what they thought would prove interesting and entertaining. My interest in the Norse mythology led me to an extremely large book, it was an almost unreadable psychological portrait of the Norse gods. It took me almost a year to read halfway through it, and I can't say that I actually understood anything from it. It was one of those books where you forget what the words mean at the end of each sentence. You could understand the sentence word by word, but in the end, there'd be nothing there. I had to keep taking that wretched book back to Farnham Library to renew it every two weeks. And eventually someone else wanted it and I had to give up on the book. Fortunately, around about that time, I was looking around the school library and I found two very interesting volumes on Tibet. They were written by two Czechoslovakian explorers Vladimir Zis and Josef Vanis. One was a book called Tibetan Art and it contained surprisingly vivid images of beings. Some were serene, but without the look of piousness with which I was familiar. The peaceful images didn't look holy or horribly humble. They didn't seem to need to grimace with the religious virtue I'd seen depicted elsewhere. There was no solemnity in them. They were joyful, but the joy was somehow at rest. I conceived of them as having all the energy they needed, but only when required. They looked as if they'd had a lot of fun and were now relaxing looking out at the world with a sense of contentment, but magnificently alive to everything that was going on. I read a great deal in those faces, mainly because I'd never seen such faces before. They seemed to be communicating with me personally. <laughs>